From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. Today's guest is Ms. Temple Price. Ms. Price earned a Master's of Arts degree in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Xavier University of Louisiana. She recently completed her first year as a PhD student in counseling psychology at Howard University. She spoke with me about the transformative impact of her graduate counseling training. We're trying to improve ourselves. Like we're trying to fix our own stuff. Like we're trying to make our own lives better. And if you are willing to be vulnerable, you really can, like that really can be facilitated in education. Like I think Temple with a master's is a better person than Temple without a master's. Not because of, not because of the accolades and not because of like the letters or anything, but just because of the things that I had to confront <laughs> spending three years on this. <laughs> so, yeah, I think if you're willing to be vulnerable, you have a lot to gain. Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, you'll hear Ms. Price describe the challenges she encountered as a first-year doctoral student, share the valuable lessons and advice she's received from mentors, and recount the growing pains associated with her work as a pre-licensed clinician. Ms. Price also discusses how she occasionally feels self-conscious about her wellness and self-care practices. Sometimes I feel embarrassed about like how much self-care I, I'm like, you know, like it feels embarrassing sometimes to me to be like, well, I, I slept eight hours last night. It doesn't always feel like you can just say that or like, yeah, like I already eat twice, I feel great. Um, but stuff like that is really important to me because I don't work well when I'm tired. I don't work well when when I'm hungry, you know, I don't work well when I'm thirsty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I feel really strongly about those things personally, I'm still working on the the confidence to be like, yes, I did make that choice. (laughs) Yeah. Temple began our conversation by describing how her high school AP psychology class sparked her initial curiosity about relational patterns and piqued her interest in the helping professions my favorite class and I just found it fascinating and did well and then um that led to me um majoring in psychology as an undergrad student thinking I was going to be a writer actually but I was just interested in psychology and then eventually things shifted and I knew I wanted to be a therapist Um, And then it kind of came to the decision of um, clinical psychology, which is what a lot of people push me to do versus counseling psychology. As I'm saying this out loud, this was like so, it was very roundabout, but um, I became interested in counseling psychology and it appealed to me because of um, the express focus on uh, multiculturalism, cultural competence, um, helping people with life's challenges, all of that, as opposed, you know, as opposed to pathology, primarily, all of that really appealed to me. So I'm like, okay, like, I can actually like remember the night that I like found it on the computer and was like, oh, this is interesting. I think I can see myself doing that. But then uh, when I finished undergrad, there were just there were there were there were short twisted turns, but basically I um, ended up at Xavier in the counseling master's program. I, I in the time right after I finished my um, undergraduate degree, I was kind of waffling on the PhD. I actually applied to some PhD programs and was not admitted. 
which I was not ready because I was not sure. But then I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get this counseling master's because whether I want to go on to a PhD or not, I know that this is a degree that I can work on. This is a degree I can work with. So I chose Xavier, in fact, because it was one of the handful of HBCUs that I could find that had a counseling master's. And I went, and that's where I met you, obviously. Um, And then deciding to come back to the PhD program really kind of represents me going back to my original goal. How did you sort through, I guess, maybe the initial disappointment of not getting into PhD programs and maybe the initial uncertainty of what it is exactly you wanted to do? How did you just make sense of that whole process? I was frustrated, but I think I knew I wasn't ready. I think I knew I wasn't ready to go back to school. In retrospect, for sure, I think I knew I wasn't ready to go back to school. So I think in retrospect, I've made sense of it that way. Like I I wasn't ready to turn right back around and go to a PhD program, especially now that I know what it entails. Yeah, I recently wrote a letter of recommendation for you. And I just look at your Vita, you know, at this early stage in your career. And I'm like, okay, she went to Wellesley. She went to Xavier. She's a doc student at Howard. People could think on paper, wow, like you just had success after success after success, like you're killing it. And yet there's been struggle and there's been disappointment. What would you say to those who are listening who feel like maybe they've had more disappointments than successes? How have you navigated some of that disappointment in a way that's helped you to continue to grow and be successful? That's a a great question. I think I didn't navigate it that well. Like, I think at the time I was just like, nothing's going right. Why can't I, you know, let me in. Uh, <laughs> I I think in retrospect is something that I think I'm, I've been learning over time is just to really appreciate process. Like a phrase I, I feel like that's used a lot in counseling circles is like, trust the process. And I, would, I would add to that even like appreciate the process because um, there are some things, this is not necessarily the path that I would have plotted for myself but there's some things that I did along the way that were really fun like my first year after Wellesley I did AmeriCorps um, in DC which is how I fell in love with DC and knew that I wanted to come back and you know I could look at that as a year that you know that I lost or that I wasn't in school or doing something you know quote-unquote productive but I had so much fun I learned a lot so I would say appreciate the process. Yeah. Yeah. You're echoing something that I say to my students, like probably monthly and they roll their eyes at it. (laughs) When they come back to talk to me, they bring it up like in a teasing way, not in a flattering way. And it's, I would always (laughs) bring up equifinality because, uh, you know, as I was getting into studying counseling, like I was already into my thirties. I'd already had a career uh, as like a public school teacher, then a private school teacher. I taught various subjects. And I would look at my younger sister, who's like seven years younger than me, like already in a doc program, and just thinking like, wow, like she has it all figured out. Like, why couldn't I have figured this out earlier? And just like that idea, I always give the image like on a PowerPoint of Google Maps, where you can take like the fastest route to a place or you can take a scenic route. And it gets you to, you know, the destination that you're hoping to get to. But maybe some are a bit more roundabout and because of that, much more enriching. And that's how I, I've kind of tried to think about it for myself is that all of the things that I've done that I could look back is 
like, oh, well, that wasn't necessarily an obstacle to where I wanted to go, but it certainly slowed down the process, that in all of those experiences, my life has been enriched and I'm a better counselor or a better counselor educator because of those things. And it sounds like for you too, whether it's something that helped you to just take more time and mature to be ready for a doc program or inform a better idea of where you'd like to live, that it wasn't the most direct route, but it does seem like it's been a beneficial route. Yes, I, I honestly, I think it's actually just been within the past year or so that I've really come to like believe that. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can see how this was helpful. <laughs> Almost that there was like a, a hopefulness in a sense, or maybe not, through the process that it was for a reason or things would get better but it almost took some time of things actually getting better to be able to look back and say, oh, well, that was necessary. That wasn't the worst. Absolutely. Well, tell me more about what it's like to be a student. So when you were at Xavier, you weren't just a full-time student. You were also a graduate assistant. I know that you were very active in helping with research and getting involved as a co-author on several articles. Just tell me about what that process was like for you. Wow. Um... I think one good thing about me knowing that I was interested in a doctorate from pretty early on, even though the doctorate didn't immediately happen, I knew that research was something that I should be looking into. So when I got to Xavier, I came the same year um, that Dr. Wes Olatunji was returning and everybody talked about her, Dr. Sarisi Wes Olatunji about how much research she does and like how much how productive she is and how she loves to work with students. So I took her research course the my first semester uh, as Xavier and at the end of the research course I you know was like I'm interested what's going on and then I actually found out later that some other students actually put in a good word for me as well because I you know I was vocal about it. Um, so when she asked, they said, well, Temple will probably be interested. Uh, so she reached out to me and I just, I got really lucky. I happened to come on at the same time that we were applying for like uh, a big National Science Foundation grant. So I got to be a part of that grant. And from there, just was able to consistently be working on research throughout my time at Xavier. Just educationally, or maybe even professionally. What was that experience like working with someone who's such a big name, former president of ACA, so well-established, not just as a rigorous researcher, but someone who secured a lot of external grants? What were some of your major takeaways from that experience? I'm glad I didn't know her as that on the front end, because then I think I would have been scared to be like, let me help you with your research. Yeah, I think I would have been more intimidated. But then I found out after the that I'm like, oh, okay, I'm working with a former president of ACA. Like, oh, like, she's gotten tons of money. And it, it's, it's, it, was, it was awesome because, you know, I was able to kind of see the process from beginning to end and be able to see somebody navigate it with a lot of confidence, which was not only instructive, but it also made it seem a lot more... Um, uh, attainable. Like, this is a person that I can reach out and touch who's, like, applying for millions of dollars, like, like, calmly. <laughs> like, it's not, like, you know, it's whatever. So, I, I think that was really, that was helpful for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it sounds like it almost demystified the process for you. That yes. It's not some abstract thing that people off in their ivory tower do. It's just like boots on the ground. You do Absolutely. it. Mm-hmm. Some people have success. A lot of people have rejection and disappointment, and you just keep chugging along. Yeah. What else did you learn just from seeing that process play out from beginning to end? I think I, kind of, I think I've sort of learned this in undergrad, but it kind of reiterated there's been a couple of times when I've had the experience of like working hard on something like for its own sake. And then a year later, like you start getting published and you start getting accolades and you start getting to go to conferences. And so like it comes, there's just like a long delay. And I think if I were like looking at my watch, I'm like, okay, who's going to let me go to a conference and talk about this? Like, when do I get to build my CV with this? Like, I think I would be very impatient, but I would just like do the work for the work's sake, for the sake of completing the test. And then like stuff starts rolling. So, yeah. Well, what would you say to those students out there who are listening, who might be afraid to just start the work and might say like, oh, that's for another day or, you know, that's for another year. How would you offer a word of encouragement to them? If there's a if there is a research project, like I haven't like had the I haven't yet had the the honor and the stress of like really being a PI or anything, but I'm realizing that you could come to a PI with like a six-year-old or a 60-year-old, and there's something that somebody can do in order to get these projects done because there's so many moving pieces. And so I can look back o- over you know, my career as a student so far. And I'm like, okay, when I was an undergrad, I was just like typing in these codes. I was just trying to transcribe this thing. Like that's what I was doing. And then, you know, now I'm a doc student. I don't have to transcribe anymore. Hallelujah. And now I can actually, you know, work on these themes. But at whatever point you're coming in, there's something for you to do. So even if you don't have a whole lot of experience, People are happy to have the help, and they will find something for you to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you're someone, when I think about just students I've had that are like model students, you're certainly one of those people. And I'd love just maybe for you to discuss with the audience what your approach to being in the classroom is like, because there's such a level of like intensity and like preparedness. It's very impressive. And so I guess like, (laughs) you know, what's your mindset when you're going into a class with everything you have on your plate to just be so invested and so present? Well, that's just me being a huge nerd. Like, I'm just a huge nerd and I'm interested in what I'm doing. So I think that that really comes down to just making sure that you're picking something that you have a genuine interest in. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty flighty. I've been interested in a, in a lot of stuff. You know, I could have picked something where I think I would have lost steam long before now. Um, but thankfully, you know, since I was 16, this has been really, really interesting to me. <laughs> so that, that, that's really what that is more than anything else. Well, tell me about specifically what some of those interests are and maybe how they may have evolved over time from, you know, 16 to where you are now. Sure. I think, I mean, the first thing that I noticed and liked about psychology is that things would be presented to me that I could immediately sort of test either like in my memory, like, Oh, do I remember that people act like this? Yes, I do. Or going forward, like I can immediately leave the classroom and like look at my parents and be like, Hmm, 
interesting, you know, like it, it, it was so, it seems so relevant. Yeah. And you know, in high school, a lot of stuff doesn't feel relevant, but that the stuff I was learning in psychology seemed so relevant to me. And then as I got older, you know, I think it's been important to me to have a career that I felt like was impactful. So at one time I thought the way to do that was to be a writer and I was going to like, you know, write this amazing stuff uh, that a lot of people would, would read. But I, I, I found out that I'm like, as interested in narrative, like you can be interested in narrative from like a writerly perspective, but I'm also like really interested in narrative of just like, what is your story? Like, tell me about your life. So that, that sort of part of it has like emerged and become really um, important for me. Yeah, I think I went from just like, this is, this is relevant to this is important to people's stories are important. And I think now I sort of feel, I think I sort of feel all those things at once. It's like, it's like the layers are building on the layers of the things that are, that are important to me about the work. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned multiculturalism and developing multicultural competency. How has that informed your research and your interests over time? Sure. Um, I will. I think like the profession, I like going, I still say competency, but I know that like we've moved on to humility, culture of humility. But um, it's just, it just seems like a no brainer. And I think that's why counseling appealed to me because I'm like, duh, like, like, of course, (laughs) of course, of course, culture is important. Of course that matters in how you decide to treat people. So yeah, it just, it, it seemed like a no-brainer, and that's kind of why I wanted to do counseling in the first place, because that's that's key. Well, how did you eventually make this shift to decide to go to Howard? I know you had a few options. What was that process like for you of reconsidering going to a doctoral program, and then how did you kind of sort through all of the options and possibilities? Well, where to begin? So to begin with, we're we're talking about cultural humility, something that I hear talked around, but maybe not always said a lot is, you know, I think, well, I'll speak for myself. I think myself as a Black woman, I grew up with the understanding that I needed to, when it comes to career, like you put yourself in the best possible position. So my parents didn't really care what I did but they were like you want to do it at the highest level you can manage because the reality is um even once I'm a PhD one day I probably still will be underpaid (laughs) so I'm like you know when I felt like okay I have I have the stamina and I have the will to finish this doctorate I should go ahead and go for this doctorate um, just from the perspective, I know I can help people, I can help people with the degree that I have, but from the perspective of like, you know, wanting things, I should probably put myself in the, in the best position possible. So that's, that's just keeping it real. <laughs> and I think a lot of like, there's a lot, or I see a lot about like, oh, like black women love degrees. Like they love going to school. And I'm sure a lot of ladies do love going to school, but that's also just because like, life <laughs> like that's just what you feel like you need in order to you know have a, a comfortable existence so that's one thing um and then as far as the choice the choice to go to howard i mean howard 
really was like the dream school. Um, I knew I wanted to come back to the DC area. Uh, I was interested in keeping the HBCU thing going, just the history of Howard, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, like the history of like black psychology and black mental health at Howard. I was just like, ah, that being said, if I couldn't get any funding, I wasn't going to go there. And I had people, really influential people tell me as early as undergrad, you don't pay for PhDs. Like, don't pay for it. No, you don't pay for a doctorate. <laughs> so that was really, um, that had been drilled in my head for years by the time I, um, you know, began the, the PhD application process again. How, how it was the first choice, it came down to who's going to give me funding and then um and then I was able to get some funding at Howard and went ahead and and was able to go yeah when I reflect back on the narrative that you've already kind of sketched out of your development to this point in your career one of the themes that seems to emerge is that of mentorship yes that you know as a graduate student just as a daughter your parents input that mentorship has been incredibly informative and it seems like transformative I think so, yeah. What are some of those other insightful words of wisdom that your mentors have shared with you that have helped to bring you to this place that you're at now? You know, I think a lot of the things that my parents imparted on me as a kid, just as like stuff that I think of like, like that I now think of like really basic and elemental, but people don't always do. And it ends up making me look really good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like what for one example would be like just do what you say you're gonna do and I wouldn't say that I have a 100% like gold star record with that but like I try not to even say that I'm gonna do something unless I'm pretty sure that I can do it and that and that's something that I was raised with that's like so elemental and yet I've had people be like really impressed and give me like a lot of praise and opportunities just because like oh I asked her to do that and then she did it (laughs) what (laughs) so I I think it might be simple stuff like that yeah that's pretty awesome because I do uh, a good bit of like family counseling Mm. and parents often think like oh you know what I say to my young children it doesn't seem to be paying dividends now but I guess that sounds really encouraging that maybe some of the things that you say to a young child can be really uh, instructive and like paved the way for future success, but maybe the return on investment takes a few years. You just they're gonna hold it in their pocket until that frontal lobe gets all developed, and then you know they'll still have the information where they can actually impart, actually use it for sure. Well, what are some elements of maybe your academic training, your supervision, where maybe as a developing clinician you received some advice and it really helped you in your process of development? I think some of the most powerful advice that I've gotten since that I since I've been a doc student is the extent to which you can repair mistakes when you have mistakes in the counseling room and how even that repair is just kind of like part of developing the relationship and and part of uh, yeah like it's part of modeling cuz people are cuz your clients dealing with a bunch of humans like you who are also going to make mistakes. So what does it look like for someone to make a mistake and apologize and, and keep going? And that has been transformative for me on a bunch of levels, because I think as a student, 
sometimes you function in fear of mistakes. Like you're like, I, or at least I do, like I've, I've been really nervous about doing the wrong thing. As someone who takes the work seriously and who also has anxiety, I'm like, I'm going to break them. I'm going to break this person irreparably. But no, like the reality is like, I'm going to make mistakes. And part of what's going to make our relationship powerful is for me to say, remember last week? <laughs> You know, I, I'm sorry about that. Like, like, how do, how do we move forward? And I think that's just, like, so powerful. Yeah, you mentioned cultural humility, but I think just as a general rule of thumb, and this is something I always strive for, just humility can yeah. win the day. That striving for perfection is almost, like, illusory. It's, yeah. it's not necessarily attainable, but the reality of we can and will make mistakes, but it's in acknowledging them that it's not like, you know, we strive to do no harm but it's not irreparable. That, yeah. in fact, in my experience, actually, being able to acknowledge mistakes and express that humility really articulates a level of care and investment in that process that I'm willing to acknowledge my shortcomings. And the relationship, as you acknowledge, tends to go even deeper and yeah. stronger and perhaps to you know, a new place that wasn't previously attainable because there wasn't that level of trust and vulnerability. Yeah, for sure. But I also imagine, too, that in managing that anxiety and continually striving for perfection, that being able to do that previously doesn't necessarily make it easier to have to do it that inevitable next time. No. So how do, you, how do you almost psych yourself up to do that thing again that you would perhaps rather avoid? I think just remembering that it worked last time. Like, uh, like similarly with confrontation, like I've had supervisors like push me to confront a client about something and then it actually made the relationship better. So I just, I'm like, okay, well it worked last time. <laughs> That's the only way I can point myself to do it really. Yeah. Like both self-awareness and intentionality. It's not necessarily easy or comfortable, but it is in the best interest of the therapeutic alliance and the client's goals. And so you just do it. Yeah. What are other aspects of your doctoral journey right now that you reflect on after you completed your first year and just say like, wow, that was a great experience or that was just like really hard? So as doc students at Howard, we have opportunity to do our uh, practicum in the counseling center there. And I was really, really looking forward to it. And it was an awesome experience, I think I realized like, oh, I have a bunch of baggage left over from college. I was like, oh, like that, I need to work on that. And that was something that, um, that completely, maybe not, like how, how, how surprised are you really when you learn things about yourself? <laughs> but I was a little surprised by how much I was still affected. Yeah. So you have this new knowledge that maybe was surprising or it doesn't quite surprise you when you really sit with it. Yeah. Like, how do you manage that? What are those next steps I think about for those students who are maybe at the same phase of their development as you who might have some of those same things coming to the surface and they hear either their graduate level instructors or doctoral level supervisors saying, you know, like we need to work through our own stuff as we help others to work through theirs. And sometimes it could just be lip service. Yeah. How, how do you manage that? I think that that has definitely, like, 
guided my, you know, I'm like every other busy person. I'm like, oh, I need to get back in therapy. <laughs> but I think those things are definitely guiding my agenda for when I do make it back. But, and I, I also think that, um, I don't know, like I, I'm kind of like um, practicing on myself a little bit. Um, and I forget which book it was, but recently I read about, you know, you can kind of like self you, you can give yourself therapy a little bit. You can do a little bit of that self-talk. And I think that really um, has guided my self-talk. And I think even some of the techniques or reframes <laughs> that I've learned um, as a student therapist, as a student counselor, I've been able to use on myself <laughs> when I think about some of these things. Yeah. Well, it sounds like just... To be an effective counselor and perhaps an integrated person, it just means like the process of self-reflection is always ongoing. Yeah. That we're kind of evaluating what are those narratives, those stories that we've always told ourselves and, you know, to what extent is that helpful? What extent is that kind of counterproductive toward your future goals? And then you just continue to kind of write that story as you go in a way that maybe is working toward a more positive destination. The level of self-reflection might I think that might be one of the hardest aspects of I guess I guess pursuing this path, yeah, because you have all the you have all the academic rigor plus tears like 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 plus plus all of this all of this 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 very personal uh self reflection yeah well, what would you say to a student out there who's maybe contemplating applying to doctoral programs or has been accepted and is you know, anticipating for the next academic year to become a doctoral student, and they just killed it academically, but maybe is a bit nervous about the rigorous self-reflection that needs to take place. What might you say to them about the necessity of ongoing self-reflection? I think that that is really part of the gift of the work. Now, this I'm like, this I know I got from... Um, on being a therapist by Kotler. Um, they had us read that this year, but it was talking about like, why do people even choose this? Like, why do why do why does anyone choose to be a therapist? Like, why do you want to sit and listen to people's trauma? <laughs> but um, you know, he sort of acknowledged the fact that like part of it is because we're trying to improve ourselves, like we're trying to fix our own stuff, like we're trying to make our own lives better. And if you are willing to be vulnerable, you really can, like, that really can be facilitated in education. Like, I think I've become, like, I think Temple with a master is a better person than Temple without a master. It's not because of, not because of the accolades and not because of, like, the letters or anything, but just because of the things that I had to confront <laughs> spending three years on this. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think if you're willing to be vulnerable, um, you have a lot to gain. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier, like to look at you on paper, it seems like it's been such a charmed, glamorous set of achievements one after another. And yet kind of how you characterize your studies is that it's been very painful to attain both the accolades and the necessary personal emotional growth. What are some of the other maybe academic or just unexpected challenges that you encountered 
at Howard because it was your top school. You weren't going to go there unless you had funding, and yet you're there with funding about to go into your second year. People could say you're living the dream, <laughs> but you know, let's maybe bring it back down to reality. What does that reality look like? <sighs> I mean, hmm, what can I say? Like being, being a PhD student is not horrible. Like I, like I did, like, I don't know. I imagined that they were going to like, I don't know, like flog us or something. Like I thought it was gonna be really, really, really bad. <laughs> it is not that bad. I think it's I think it's not as bad as everyone um prepares you for. That being said, I haven't done, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth years yet. So this is just one year in. But um I think some things to think about. I think socially it's hard for a lot of people. Um like nine times, nine times out of 10, like the majority of the people that you're going to be around this, the experience of being a PhD student is going to be far, like, not to say that they don't know what a PhD is or like, they don't like people can have a, um, like a factual intellectual understanding of what it is that you're doing and still not really understand what you're doing. Because the thing is like, I never felt like I was being like tortured or flogged, but you are sort of like, plugged in 24 like you're kind of you know you're kind of working 24 7 and I think people don't the people around you probably don't get that um people don't always respect your boundaries in terms of uh, the time that you need to do things or even the time that you need to decompress after doing all the things (laughs) um competitiveness I don't like to think of myself as a competitive person but one of my professors was like Y'all are competitive. You're in a PhD program. Like you're you're competitive. <laughs> like you can you can act like you're not, but you are. And I think and so I I feel like I'll feel that competitiveness getting activated. And that's not always flattering. I'm like, ooh, like this doesn't this feels icky. Like I don't know, I don't like how this feels, but that's kind of, you know, that's the environment that you're in. So yeah, I think that's one aspect of it that I've really been wrestling with. It's a complicated, it's also like a, a very complicated like social web and like hierarchies and, and, and relationships. So uh, I'm staying attuned to that as well can be a little tricky and not necessarily something that you know you're going to have to do on the front end. So all those things, sure. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like you're really kind of high intensity, stressful, high stakes environment. Yeah. And there's so much on your to-do list, but it also sounds like you've been very intentional about some of those self-care and interpersonal things that like have to be prioritized on that list in order to recharge or, you know, retain your sense of identity and maintain your boundaries or your values and just behave in a way that you would prefer to behave as you're working toward, you know, accruing those additional accolades. Yeah. I, I think so like one thing with the competitiveness, sometimes I feel embarrassed about like how much self-care I, I'm like, you know, like it feels embarrassing sometimes to me to be like, well, I, I slept eight hours last night personally. Like, 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 you know, like it, it feels like it doesn't always feel like you can just say that or like, yeah, like totally ate. Like I've, I've already eaten twice. I like, feel great. Um, but stuff like that is really important to me because I don't work well when I'm tired. I don't work well when, when I'm hungry. You know, I don't work well when I'm thirsty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
even though I feel really strongly about those things personally, I'm still working on the the confidence to be like, yes, I did make that choice. <laughs> yeah. Really, it just seems like another opportunity for modeling. That yeah. almost there's that sense of supervisor's model for you or, um, you know, counselor's model for their clients. But that was something that I strive to do is, you know, how am I being a good example, both collaboratively, but in the way that I conduct myself as a fellow student, you know, as a future colleague. And sometimes there could be that false assumption that there's one way to do this. And it's like on no sleep and <laughs> eating terrible food or starving yourself. And maybe through your example of I'm not saying like be more confident, but like, you know, in in your ability to be confident to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing that with other people, maybe it opens up the possibility through your modeling that there's another way it can be done. They're seeing you do it at a high level and it is possible to eat multiple times in a morning. It is possible to get a reasonable amount of sleep if you're strategic about how you go about that and if you prioritize those things that you know you need. And maybe yeah. those things look different for each person, but I think we all have a list of things that we need to do for ourselves. And sometimes that gets moved to the bottom of the list and often the bottom of the list gets moved to the next page. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think something that I've done really differently, like over the course of being a student now is like anything, anything that is, it, it seems so obvious now, but like anything that has to do with like my physical sustenance is a priority. And I think they like that really, like that was not the culture of my undergrad institution at all. Like, like nobody really teaches you that, but I'm definitely at the point now where I'm like, you know, like undergrad, like people like during finals, people would skip showers. I ain't skipping a shower, you know, like I'm like, I'm, I'm getting in the shower, you know, cause this is, this is my, this is my physical health and wellness. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I'm going to be more confident in that. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, to self-disclose, because I don't want to put out that image that, like, I had, like, you know, all the gold stars or yeah. I was <laughs> the role model. Um, when I was doing my master's program, I lived on, like, the North Shore. And so I would commute across the bridge oh. to go into New Orleans multiple times a week. And I was always coming from my job as a teacher. Mm. And so, you know, I'd leave school at 3.30 in the afternoon and I'd get to uh, New Orleans and I would like hit up Wendy's first thing and I would get five things off the value menu. Yes. And the back of my car was literally <laughs> Wendy's wrappers <laughs> and energy drink cans. And I just thought, like, just how it made me feel physically. It's like, I don't know if this is sustainable. And just having to make that conscious effort when I transition into a PhD program to say, like, oh, I can't eat like this anymore. Like, if I'm going to be able to get through this entire day and do everything that's demanded of me, and to do it in the way I would hope to do it, I just have to eat better, which meant, like, having to plan ahead and just bring things along for the ride. Um, for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And now, and now I tell myself, you know, if I do – um, if I do spend an hour cooking, like I think, whereas a few years ago I would have, it would have like stressed me, like, ah, it's taking me so long to cook this food. Ah, I should study. Oh no! Like now I feel like no, like I need, I need to eat. Like I'm not really even gonna retain this information well unless I eat. So this is just the time that it's gonna take in order for me to achieve that. And I think that really cuts through the paradox. There's almost like that faulty assumption that the more time I spend on a thing, the better prepared I will be, mm -hmm. which 
I think back to my time as a school counselor trying to convince, you know, high achieving, very ambitious students of that reality that, you no, know, sometimes taking more time for yourself, while you may quantify the amount of time that you're dedicating to academics as, you know, less than what you would hope it to be, mm-hmm. that time is so much more intense and productive that it's actually better than spending a couple extra hours. Yes. Which is easier said than done, right? Because it just seems like to make more sense in your feeling of like, oh, I studied three more hours, I'm better prepared. Well, probably not. In undergrad, we we used to sit around that library and we'd sit around the library for 12 hours and we were not working. Like, like we, weren't, we weren't working that whole time. So yeah, like if you subtract the time that you spend eating a good meal, showering, talking to a friend, your actual hours of productivity, you know, I would, I I think I would hypothesize that the actual hours of productivity, if not, if they're not similar, even after you've done all that stuff versus just like hanging out for a long, an undisclosed period of time pretending to study, um, I think it's probably at least comparable, (laughs) the amount of work you would actually get done. Well, you said at the beginning you loved it test things and you're a curious person. So I'm going to get back to you on that one. Like, yeah. Go ahead and test that over the next year. See how that goes. See how it works. Well, could you speak about you're in the pre-licensure phase right now? Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to school in DC. You're doing clinical work in Maryland. How has that process been for you applying for you know a provisional license or working toward full licensure? So I finished my first year um, of my PhD program, like April 29th, but I think it ended up bleeding into the first week of May. And then I thought it would be a great idea to take the Maryland law test for licensure, like on May 17th. Like I thought that would be a great, I'm like, I'm just going to keep this momentum going. That was a terrible idea. (laughs) It was really stressful. Um, But I did pass. And I think for me, the licensure process has been, I don't want to use the word consuming because it's not consuming, but it takes a lot. I'm like, oh, shoot, like I need to like go get these fingerprints. And I had to study for this test and I had to, you know, blah, 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 which is really, really hard to do when you are also trying to pursue doctoral work. So it was really, it really wasn't even until the summer that like I was able to spend intense time on it. But then I think um, as far as like being free licensure, the the real world is so much different than school. I think, I think I under, I think I assume being like a pre licensure therapist would be a lot like being a counseling student. And it's not, it's not. Um, the the goals are not the same. The support is not the same. So that has been an adjustment, but it's been it's been a growing opportunity for sure. How have you responded to those unanticipated differences? Have you sought out additional support or consultation to ensure that your needs are being met and you're being adequately supported through that process? I, sh- I think that I, I should seek out more consultation. There's a lot of books that I've owned for a long time that I'm just now reading. <laughs> like, I'm just now reading them from cover to cover. I'm like, okay. Like, now, you know, there there would be books that I would, like, get when I was in my master's program that, you know, are great, but they're hard to even, like, really... Um, 
contextualize if you're not actually practicing. So like now I'm going back to some of my resources from school with actual like cases in mind. And like that has been really helpful because I'm like, okay, like now I have the tools to actually understand (laughs) what this says and clumsily attempt to apply it. But I do, I think I could stand to do a lot better with like reaching out for a consultation from people who are in the field. Yeah, that was very much my personal experience as well, that I would hear professors say to me a lot. I realize I give you a lot of handouts. I realize that I give you a lot of journal articles, or I suggest a lot of outside resources and books. Right now, it's just information overload. Like As a student, you don't know what you don't know yet. And as you acknowledged, you don't have the practical professional experiences to contextualize these things that are going to seem so abstract and removed Mm -hmm. from this classroom. And I find myself saying the same thing to my students. I just last week, I gave out so many handouts that, you know, in a six-day summer school class that meets from nine to four, there's no way they could read all of these things. But just saying, like, here's some resources that you can file away in a binder so you know where to access them, because there will come a time where this will be immensely practical and will be really helpful. Maybe now's not that time. So it's really encouraging for me to hear you say, not just like, I realize that I need to read more of these things, but you're actually doing it. Yeah, for sure. Which is easier said than done. Mm -hmm. What are other things that you find yourself grappling with or have been kind of growing edges in this transition toward real boots on the ground counseling? I think again, as an anxious person, you know, and I can, and I can already start to tell the difference between things that I have experience with and things that I don't, because there are certain things that, you know, might seem scary, but I've just had experience with them. So it's cool versus other things where I'm like, I don't don't know. And that makes me really anxious. And I don't know, you know, how helpful I'm going to be or, or what? Um, yeah, I think in encountering new scenarios because that's still happening. I think I can. I think I can sort of project myself into the future. I think I'm getting enough experience to know that there are things that come up again and again, and there are things that are sort of universal. And like there are those things where people are like, "I'm the weirdest person in the world," and they don't know that you've already talked to four people this week who like have that same problem. So I can sort of project myself into the future and think, okay you know, as a seasoned therapist, this won't be scary. But right now, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to approach this issue at all. Or, uh, wow, this issue really um, reminds me of myself. And like, I know what countertransference is, but am I really handling this the best way possible? I think, I think just people in general not understanding what counseling is and what you're there for. And I don't even mean like clients per se, but I mean like clients, parents, POs, business people, like they're, you know, like you interface with so many people who don't really understand what you're doing or what your goals are. How would you hope to kind of combat that misunderstanding or advocate for the profession in a way that advances the public's understanding or destigmatizes help-seeking behavior? I think there's already a lot being done. I think, like, I think as far as 
you know, like media and the sort of cultural shift to make therapy okay. Like, I think that has been really, really successful, but people still don't really understand what to expect or what it entails. So I think just even like, okay, deepening and and broadening the the narrative of what of what therapy looks like well how do you broach that subject with your clients is that part of your informed consent process to kind of get out to the front of that yes but but now that we're talking about it i mean i I do have my spiel that i say to everybody (laughs) but yeah like now i'm even i'm even thinking of ways that i can sort of deepen that but like i have my spiel that i give to everyone and then if, um, as we begin the relationship, you know, it kind of starts to emerge if the person's expectations are like radically different from mine. And I love having conversations about that. So, so I, I revisit the conversation of like, you know, I'll, I'll be both, are we both coming to this interaction with similar, with at the very least similar goals in mind? That's been similar to my experience too, where there's our ethical legal obligation to give proper, thorough, informed consent, but at the same time, that more nuanced, broader perspective of what the counseling relationship can and maybe needs to be is not always there. So to go too deeply into that on that first initial day almost can be too overwhelming, right? Yeah. Like it's information overload. So I love how you said that almost over time in being sensitive and responsive to the other person's stated goals and expectations, that that can kind of be shaped into a more like collaborative, unified perspective. Yeah, because it's hard, it's, it's, it's hard to anticipate exactly what people know going in. So, yeah. You spoke about all of the great work that's being done in the media to transform and really just normalize you know, the seeking of counseling services. When you look ahead, when you project into the future of just our profession in general, where would you like or hope the profession to be, say, 10 years from now and then maybe like 20 years from now? I think 10 years from now, I'd like like, um, therapy to be a lot more accessible than it is. I'm trying to think of something that I want therapy to be as accessible as. Because there are there are some services like the the thing that's popping into my to my mind is dental. So you know, in a lot of cities, especially big cities, even if you're poor, you can get decent dental care, right? Because like we know that's important. We know it's connected to any other part of your health, and we know that when people don't get adequate dental care, like their career suffers, their health suffers, it's just rough. And so people who can't have that, like that's that's something to advocate around. So I wish that mental health was similar, like, but, and like all of that. And yet nobody's, no, we, nobody says, oh, that dentist isn't going to make enough money. <laughs> like, like both of those things sort of exist at once. Like nobody, nobody's worried about dentists paying their rent. Um, and yet, and I hope I'm not like now I'm like, I hope this isn't a bad example because de- dental care probably, there's probably a lot of people who need more access to dental care too. Um, but I think, you know, I guess they've had more of a head start. <laughs> but yeah, I, I want um, therapy to be, once someone decides they want to go to therapy, I want it to be something that they can, I want them to be able to have an appointment that week 
and and all too often that isn't the case even like even for myself like as a very privileged person as a privileged person who also doesn't have $180 to spend every week like it's, it's it has been hard for me in certain situations to find a therapist and i recently read an article like somebody did a study that was like um like a working class black man has to try 16 times harder to get a therapist than a middle class white woman so I think like real actual accessibility that doesn't come at the cost of therapists, because I think, you know, of course, people in helping professions, a lot of times they end up with a short end of the stick. Women, a lot of times end up with a short end of the stick. So I think, I, that, I guess that segues into something else I, I, I care about as it pertains to the profession is just, I want people to be well-valued at the master's level. You know, I also, like, I have a legit, I have a, a genuine interest in teaching and supervising. So I, I don't want to sound, um, I don't want to sound as though I'm only pursuing a PhD because I think I'll make more money. Like, that's not the only reason that I'm pursuing a PhD, but it was a humongous factor. But to be able to rest assured that um, as a woman, that I could go with the master's and still make a good living would be nice. And I don't think that that can all, and have, you know, like, especially in New Orleans, I would just meet these people who are amazing, like dope, dope clinicians. And people want to pay them $32,000. People want to, you know, people want to act like there's something wrong with them for asking for $38,000. Like, Oh, you, you think you big stuff. And I, and I, and I, and that, and that really, um, that really bothers me. And I, and I think that there's, there's definitely, um, I think if the, if the profession wasn't so filled with women, <laughs> this wouldn't be as much of a problem. Right. So yeah, I want to, I want to see people have access. I want to see therapists be paid well at every level. And then looking longer term, you know, you've acknowledged that you want to teach. You've always been drawn to writing. Like what would you hope would be you know, the trajectory of your career as you, you know, successfully complete your degree at Howard? Well, I, I mean, one of the things that appeals to me about the PhD is because you can do so much, like, cool stuff. So I'm like, I'm like I gotta write a book. Like, I just, I need to see my name on a book. Like, that has to happen at some point. So I would really like to do that. Podcasting is, like, a super interesting space. Like, me and um, my friend who's getting her PhD in history at Johns Hopkins. We started a podcast, which means that what that means is that several unedited podcasts exist on my computer. <laughs> That's what that means as of now. But we did record some stuff. Um, but we just like we, um, you know, we started a podcast just about our experiences as black women PhD students. So like I think when um, academics, I guess when academics do stuff like this, I think is super exciting. In addition to, like, I just want to be, like, a really good supervisor. I want to teach fun classes. Like, I want to teach interesting classes. Yeah. All of that. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm and your attitude. Just saying, like, you know, I'm going to write a book. Like, no question, right? Like, you're going to see your name on a book. And it makes me think of some of (laughs) the advice that I got as a PhD student, which is, you know, we kind of touched on this earlier. You know, like, don't get bogged down in other people's drama or the stories they're telling themselves or the things that they're doing well or not doing well. 
I'd really be attentive to what it is like my goals are and how I'm doing that and what I feel like I'm capable of doing. And just that mindset of like, this is going to happen no matter what, there's no alternative. Like that really helped me to complete the dissertation uh, rather quickly and, mm. and not too stressfully. Just because yeah. I said like, oh, I, I love writing. Like it is one of my strengths. Like I'm just going to go full steam ahead. That's another mindset I have too is uh, like I will write a book one day. Yeah. And, and just that's really gotten me through some tough times of there's no alternative but to do the thing I put my mind to. Yeah. And when there's no plan B, it just kind of finds a way. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited to eventually hear your podcast if it gets released. I was going to ask you to pl- plug it here so that our listeners could go find it, but it sounds like you're not quite ready to put well, it out yet. Well, I, can, I, can I plug it? So hopefully if someone listens in the future and we have some episodes posted, the, the we have a name for it, everything. It's called The Study Group. Um, it's with me, Temple Price, and my good friend, uh, Dominique, who is, like I say, a history PhD at Johns Hopkins. But yeah, study group is coming soon. We're working on it. It's gonna, it's gonna be coming soon to a to a, a, a podcast streaming service near you. Yeah, look for it. And that's what I love about podcasting, just like Netflix. It's, you know, once you create it, it's on demand and it's just there. So when it does come out, I can go back and re-edit the episode description and put a link in it. So yeah, maybe someone a year or two down the line is listening to this and they'll see it in the episode (laughs) description. Yes. And you're right, exactly. And I'm going to be confident and and just claim that, that that person who's listening years from now will have I um, will have multiple podcasts from us to choose from. <laughs> nice, yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time. You said that sometimes doctoral students struggle to find time to do the things that are most important to them, and yet you've been so generous to make time to do something that's extra. Oh, no problem. And I really appreciate just your generosity. So as we wrap up, I wanted to just ask you the same question that I ask every guest in the podcast, and that's just to think about a time in your life where Maybe you had a mindset or an approach to something that wasn't quite as positive as you'd like it to be, or maybe it was a bit problematic, and you just stepped back and you reflected on it, and that way of reframing that mindset or that reality made all the difference. Well, I think, you know, kind of going along with what we've been talking about today, when I first started at Howard, I I really wasn't feeling um, confident about myself as a student. A lot, several of pe- several of the people in my hor- cohort, excuse me, came to our program directly from undergrad. So they did the thing that I, you know, could not manage to do, <laughs> or or they're, you know, they're a few years out of undergrad. A lot of the uh, several people in my cohort are younger than me, and then the one person who's older than me has had a career and you know had a successful career in tech and made a bunch of money and like did all that. So I sort of, so when I first showed up, I sort of felt like, I don't like, I just kind of showed up. It's like, it's not like I'm a, you know, a phenom who came here straight from undergrad. And it's not like I already had a successful career and this is just me, you know, making my next step. Like I've just sort of been a student slash entry level mental health worker um, this whole time. So I went to therapy and then I, I really got a lot of um, help sort of reframing those insecurities 
I guess I guess I sort of thought thought of some of those insecurities in some ways as a lack of experience because I feel like I've been entry level for so long, but actually like I've had a plethora of experiences. Like I've done HIV testing at um, gay clubs in DC. I've been in rural Louisiana, you know, like you know, stepping back for people's Rottweilers, like trying to visit a kid. You know, I've just, I've done, I've got to do a lot of stuff that was not glamorous. You know, some of it was fun. <laughs> and I had to sort of reframe that because that stuff makes me a better doctor now. Like it just, it just makes me better. The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.